You are listening to the IMN podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. Our next speaker went from his childhood home in rural Idaho to serving and working in countries literally all over the world, both as a member of the United States Air Force and a medical ear, nose, and throat specialist. This is Michelle Burke, and today on the I Am In podcast, you will hear from Dr. Brian Affleck. Brian grew up in Ammon, Idaho. He served a Spanish-speaking mission in Chicago, Illinois. He graduated from Brigham Young University with a bachelor's degree in microbiology. He attended medical school at the Uniform Services University of Health Science, F. Edward Hubert School of Medicine. After medical school, he began his surgical training at Travis Air Force Base in California. After a year of surgical training, he served in the Air Force as a flight surgeon for six years. And during that time, he deployed to multiple locations and participated in a variety of missions, including combat sorties, humanitarian and medical support, and direct presidential support for George W. Bush. He served as a squadron commander and a chief of the medical staff. He retired from the Air Force after 25 years of service to his country. After retirement, the Afflecks moved to La Grande, Oregon for two years and ultimately settled in southwest Idaho. He now works at Saltzer Medical Group as an ENT. He practiced in Nampa for eight years and has recently moved to a new office in Meridian. Brother Affleck serves in the community as a scoutmaster for Troop 888 in Meridian, Idaho, and has been heavily involved in scouting since he was 18. Brian married Mary Webb. Together they have five children and ten grandchildren. Brother Affleck has served in a multitude of callings, from nursery, primary, young men's, bishopric, high counselor, stake young men's president, and currently serves as the primary chorister in his home ward. All right, so because this is primary, we need to do a couple of songs, right? Everybody should stand up and we should sing head, shoulders, knees, and toes. At least that's what my primary kids like to sing. That's one of my favorites. Uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of move around. I don't like death by PowerPoint, so I didn't bring anything special except for a few things that remind me of different events in my life. And so what you can see is some headgear. So I have a helmet from when I flew, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna just kind of start and pick some of the hats that I've worn over the years. But you know, life begins before you're born. And that really goes to who your parents are and who your grandparents are. Uh, and it's really kind of interesting as we drove down university, I had very fond memories of my time visiting my grandparents because my grandparents' house is on 1919 Manitou Avenue, which is about 10 blocks from here. And the Broadway Bridge, we would walk as kids when we would come to visit my grandparents here in Boise. I grew up in Idaho Falls, or Ammon, and we spent a lot of time in Boise. 
And so Boise brings back a lot of fond memories. It's interesting that we ended up living where my father grew up and I grew up on the other side of the state. So we've sort of reversed roles, at least in a sense. This first hat is my grandfather's hat. Now my grandfather uh, is an interesting character and, and the reason he was is because at the age of 17, he actually apostatized from the church. He left the church. He didn't practice, he wasn't active. And he actually left Boise. It's where he, well, actually he was really in, in Utah, but uh, he spent time in, in here in Boise and ultimately married a young lady from Virginia. And she was not a member of the church. And in fact, her family accused him of being the Mormon that stole their daughter away from them in Virginia. Um, but my grandfather had a very interesting life. Uh, not only did he leave the church, but he picked up a couple of bad habits, uh, ultimately one that uh, was the cause of his death uh, because he had lung cancer from smoking cigarettes. But my grandfather was really interesting because my grandfather really instilled in his boys, and he had three boys and one girl, and those children all learned to work really hard. And my grandfather worked very, very hard. Uh, if, you, if you go down to where his house is, on Manitou Avenue, there is a park, now called Manitou Park, and that park is my grandpa's farm. And it's really nostalgic for me to drive down there because the house is still there and the park is there, and I have fond memories of going into the barn, which now has been torn down. Uh, but my grandfather taught his boys to work hard, and my father passed that on to his boys. And one of the things that I learned very early on in my life was the benefit and the advantages of working very hard. And I would tell you that's one of the things that hopefully I've instilled in my own children is the power and the, and the principle of hard work. But this hat reminds me of my grandfather because he always had a hat on. Now I don't wear a hat very often, but this hat is, is special to me. It's, it's old. It's literally an antique and if I put it on it'll fall apart. But this hat reminds me of my grandfather. Even though he was not an active member of the church, he raised all of his kids to go to church. And when the family lived in Ogden, Utah, he wanted his children to be close to his family that were active members of the church. And my father's aunt Lily, Lily Kidgel, is a lady who I have a lot of admiration for. And the reason I do is because when my father was 10 years old, my, his Aunt Lily made sure that he went to primary. And my father wasn't baptized at the age of eight. He was probably about 10. And the reason he got baptized was because of his Aunt Lily in Ogden, who made sure that he went to primary. And primary back then was not on Sunday. It was oftentimes on Tuesday or Thursday or some other day of the week. But I owe my Aunt Lily, or my dad's Aunt Lily, a lot of gratitude because Aunt Lily is probably the reason that I'm a member of the church at all. So your life begins before you're born, even if you don't know it. Now, my father... Having grown up 
in a lot of places. He was born in Washington, D.C. My grandfather worked for the what's called the Civil Aeronautics Authority, and that is the predecessor of the FAA, the Federal Avionics Administration. And the CAA, what they did is they actually went around to the country. This is when aviation was just, commercial aviation was just coming into its own. And he traveled around a lot. In fact, he was the chief engineer for two big airports that you'll recognize. Uh, Dulles International in Washington, D.C. and SeaTac. And so they traveled all over the countryside. And my father really didn't have a place that he called home being born in Washington, D.C. and whatnot. But interestingly enough, as my father grew up, the travel bug never stopped. Uh, and when he got to the point where he was uh, out of school, he went to medical school. My father was a physician. Actually, he was an ear, nose, and throat specialist, much like I am. He actually spent his first four years as a practicing physician in France. So he was stationed in France. He was single at the time a little bit older, but in France they had a lot of interesting things because that's where the uh, NATO headquarters, the Supreme Allied Headquarters Command was in Paris, France. It's now in Belgium, so it's moved. And that's also known as SHAPE. And guess who worked at SHAPE for the Supreme Allied Commander? My mother. Now she was younger, she was an American, she grew up in Utah. She was not really super active in the church, my dad was, again, my Aunt Lily, or his Aunt Lily, uh, but they met in France, and my, my father was serving as the branch president. My mother was the organist. And when it got time for my mom to say, well, you know, I've done my time, I'm going to go, he said, why don't you stay and marry me, and then you can continue to play the organ for the branch. <laughs> <laughs> So there, that was their romance. They were married in France. They were married right there in Paris. Uh, this, this hat is a, is a French beret that they got in Paris. And the law, and, and again, we, would, we probably wouldn't do this in the United States today, but the law then in Europe was that you had to be married civilly before you are sealed in the temple. And guess what? There was a temple in Europe at that time. Anybody want to guess where that was? What's that? Was it in Germany? It was not in Germany. That's close, though. They speak German a lot. Was it in Switzerland? It was in Switzerland. So it's the Bern Switzerland Temple. And two days after my parents were married, they took a big entourage of, of army and, and NATO folks that they knew, all friends. They called them the Paris Group. There's actually three boys that were all born over there at the same time, and I'm one of those. Um, so they were sealed uh, a day or two later in the Bern Switzerland temple. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you talk to my mother, and my parents are both passed, but when you talk to my mom, her experience in the temple was, well, quite frankly, it wasn't that great. It wasn't an experience she really wanted to do again because she was so overwhelmed with the things that she learned and experienced in the temple. It wasn't until I was going on my mission, in fact, that my mother really went back to the temple for the first time after she got married. She was overwhelmed by that experience. And I think a lot of that speaks to, back then, a, a significant lack of preparation that was available for young people. She was in her mid-20s. She grew up a member of the church, but she wasn't, she was sort of active, but not really. 
But when I went to the temple for my first time, my experience in the temple was really fabulous. In fact, I couldn't get enough, and I wanted to go back again and again and again. So those are my parents. Again, my father was an ear, nose, and throat specialist. My mother was a stay-at-home mom for the most part uh, until I was probably in high school, and then she actually went to work for my father, uh, and he practiced in Idaho Falls. So I came along about a year and a half after my parents were married, and I was born in Paris at what's called the American Hospital in Paris. And we were there for a sum total of six weeks. So I remember zero of my time in France. But what being born in France did for me was it made me a dual citizen. Now, there aren't very many countries that do that. The only problem is that when I turned 18, if I didn't declare a country, I was gonna get drafted into the French army. And I didn't speak a lick of French. So, well, I could say touche pas because that's what my parents said to me a lot. That means don't touch for anybody who speaks French. Uh, I'm a boy, I touch everything, I blow things up, I take things apart and I forget how to go back together. That's just what you do, right? But that was, that was my growing up. So I didn't speak French, I had to declare uh, do I really want to be a citizen of the United States and France? I didn't really want to serve in the army in France, especially since I didn't speak any French. So I declared, I said, yeah, yay verily. I'm going to stay here in the United States. I'm not going to France. You're not going to deport me or anything else crazy. Um, but my growing up time, when we, when we left France, we went to Minnesota my dad did some training in Minnesota to finish or to do his residency training program in, in uh, ear, nose, and throat or otolaryngology. And we spent four years in, in Minnesota. My little brother was born. We had hurricanes. We had all kinds of fun things. And then we moved to Idaho Falls where I spent the rest of my growing up years. I went to junior high, high school. Uh, during that time as I grew up, uh, I was involved in scouting and one of the things that, and, and again, my, my father's beret from France made me really like berets. And this, this is an old beret that I wore as a Boy Scout at a training program called Cedar Badge, which is done at uh, Treasure, Treasure Mountain Scout Camp. And they actually still had it by the time my son was that age. And he went to Cedar Badge and actually served on staff. And he has a hat just like this. Um, during the time I was growing up, I was active in the church. Uh, I loved what I did. Uh, I was in the deacon's quorum presidency, the teacher's quorum presidency. And as a, as a priest, we had a very, very big ward. And we had a lot of young men. So for those of you who are young men who served in young men's deacons, teachers, and priests, tell me what you think is the largest number of young men you ever had in a quorum. 12, 20, 30, anybody? I think we had 18. 18, that's pretty big, okay. We had about 18 deacons at one okay. point. Okay, so, so my ward was so big that we had three deacons quorums. Three deacons quorums. That's a lot of deacons. And we're actually, most of us are still friends today, those of us that are still around. 
we had two teachers quorums and we had one priest quorum. Now, all of that is doctrinal in the Doctrine and Covenants. You can look it up and there are numbers that are assigned to quorums. When I was a priest quorum or in the priest quorum, I was the first assistant to the bishop and we had, um, we had 28 active priests. So how often would we get a chance to bless the sacrament? Maybe once a quarter if you were lucky. So there were that many of us. But it was really that group of young men that we really got to know each other well and we're still good friends to this day. Uh, my best friend and neighbor's name is Mike. He lives in uh, Tennessee now. Uh, we still talk and we still recall old experiences of you know, riding skidoos and throwing snowballs at each other and other fun things that, that young men like to do. Um, one of the challenges that I had as a, as a youth is that I wasn't perfect, much like you. And as I, there was never a question in my mind whether I wanted to serve a mission or not. I knew I wanted to, I knew I was going to. But one of the challenges that I faced was that I oftentimes felt like I was not worthy. I oftentimes struggled with testimony and knowing if I was doing the right thing or not. And so when I was 17, I took a few days in my life and I said, I gotta just figure this out. Uh, it wasn't a tremendous wow experience. I didn't have a vision. I didn't have anything special. But I, but I took the opportunity to fast. And I fasted for longer than you probably should. It was several days. And my mother came down to my bedroom and she goes, what is your problem? What are you doing? Why won't you come eat with us? It was like she was put off by the fact that I was, I was fasting. Um, but as I fasted and as I prayed and as I prepared, and, and part of that preparation was, you know, am I really worthy to go to the temple? Am I really worthy to get uh, my patriarchal blessing? I really felt a strong, overwhelming sense of peace uh, at that age. And again, I didn't do anything super bad, super wrong. I wasn't, you know, grand theft or anything crazy. But I really just needed to know deep in my heart that I was doing all the right things. And so that time of prolonged fasting, uh, which I don't know if any of you have that trouble, but fasting for just one day sometimes is a real challenge. It's not easy. And so it, was, it, it took a lot out of me to be able to do that. But that singular moment in my life was one where I felt the Lord really did love me and that I could really go and do the things that I really wanted to do deep in my heart to serve a mission, to get a patriarchal blessing and do all the other fun things that were in my future. At 17, I didn't have really a tremendous vision. I knew that there were probably three things in my life that I wanted to do. I wanted to go on a mission, I wanted to get married and I wanted to be an ear, nose and throat specialist. In fact, I'm kind of weird that way because I knew when I was six years old that I wanted to be an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and here I am. Uh, I think that's unusual, and I've, I've been and served in young men's for lots and lots of years, and knowing what you want to do that early on in life is a little unusual, and I got it. I know. I'm weird. I'm strange. <laughs> but it led me to a few things because part of what I do and what I did as I grew up 
and as I embarked on my professional career, was I would establish goals. And I would see the future that I wanted, and that led me to where really I am today. And so when I went to, to BYU after I graduated from high school, it's like, I really don't want to put a financial burden on my parents to have to pay for college and then to medical school, because medical school is going to be really a lot of money. It's going to cost a bunch. But I had a roommate, and I went to high school with him. His name was also Brian. He spells it with a Y instead of an I. So he's a little bit more odd than I. But he was actually on a scholarship through the Air Force. And I asked him, I said, how on earth can you get a scholarship to the Air Force? They, they already want you to do something in the Air Force, like be a pilot or a missile launch officer or whatever. And he goes, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to become ultimately, but yeah, there's this program. You can be on track to be an Air Force officer and they'll pay for school. And I said, I wonder if they have something like that for doctors. And so I sure enough, I looked into it and they do. They have this really cool program called HPSP, Health Scholarship or Health Profession Scholarship Program. And I went, huh, that's just what I need. So I applied and guess what? I got it. I got this scholarship and what it did is it paid for undergrad. So I paid for my education at BYU on a scholarship. And as soon as I got accepted to medical school, it would transition to pay for medical school as well. What a cool scholarship that was. I just completely got my parents off the hook of paying for my education. Really pretty cool. Well, it gets even better than that because when I was ready to go to medical school after I went to BYU, I went to a, to a university that was kind of a step above the HPSP program called Uniformed Services University. And at Uniformed Services University, as opposed to being on an HPSB scholarship, you're actually not on active duty. But at, H, or at Uniformed Services, you actually are. So one of the weird, unique, fun things about my medical education is that I got paid to be a student. Now, it wasn't very much. It was enough to live. Not much more than that. But... All my job was, was to go to medical school. So wonderful that I could really dedicate my time to being a good student because that's all I had to do. And I got a paycheck to do it. Pretty fancy, right? Well, while I was in, in, in medical school, you really have to think about what you want to do, what specialty you want to practice. Uh, and I had a, a singular unique experience where because of the birth of my oldest daughter being a little early, my professors told me, you know what, you need to just take a few weeks and go take time with your family. She was born six weeks early. She was in the intensive care unit at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And my professors were not worried about me getting through their classes. They were more worried about me being in school or in taking care of my family. And they said, just go, and we'll worry about it afterwards. And that was one of the best things that we did because I was able to spend time with my wife and our oldest daughter while she was in the intensive care unit. She was there roughly about two weeks, 
And then I got to go back and finish up biochemistry, gross anatomy. My gross anatomy, I actually had to finish in the summertime. This is in, in late, about this time of year. My daughter's birthday is next week. So I got to take part of my summer, supposed to be vacation, wasn't much of a vacation, but part of the anatomy that I had missed in college or in, in, in that last end of that semester was head and neck anatomy. It's right here. It's everything right here. And I had a cadaver all to myself. Now, that might sound really gross to some of you, but for a doctor who wants to be a surgeon, to be able to have a cadaver all to myself, to dissect it out and to do all the things that we did with it was transformative to me. And I had a professor one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, you didn't get that in medical school in any other way. Uh, and hence my desire and my love for what goes on here in the face and the head and neck. Uh, plus the fact that my father was an ear, nose, and throat specialist. I, I really had reached what I thought was nirvana. I was there. I had arrived, even though I had a lot of years left. In fact, 16 more years left in order to get to where I was or wanted to be. But uh, that unique experience helped me to really decide that ear, nose, and throat was a specialty that I could love and that I do, and I practice every day. Um, my time in the Air Force was, was also uh, very interesting because I knew that going through my residency training program was not gonna be a straight shot. There was gonna be a different pathway. I was gonna have to take a little jog off to the left or off to the right. And so one of the things that I got to do, and this is where I bring my hats out, is after my medical school, I did an ear, a year of internship in general surgery. Now, that didn't make me a general surgeon by any stretch, but the Air Force uses doctors who have one year of postgraduate training to serve as general medical officers. And there's two different kind of classes of general medical officers. There are doctors that do family practice or basic primary care. They see sick call. Uh, we sometimes call it colds and flu, uh, back pain, that kind of stuff. The other side of that is that you could opt to be a flight surgeon. And that's what I did. And as a flight surgeon, some people say, oh, you do surgery in the air. Well, no, that's not really what we do. We're basically primary care doctors. We take care of pilots and other air crew and air traffic controllers, and we get the opportunity to fly. So here I am, brand new doctor, one year of general surgery training, and I go to a place called Loring Air Force Base in Northern Maine. And we were stationed there for almost two years, and our flying assignment, we had two different aircraft. We had B-52s, which are big lumbering birds that drop lots of bombs, and we had tankers, KC-135s. There was also a co-pilot training program for the pilots in the tankers, or in the bombers, so we had tweets as well, T-37s. So I spent a year and a half doing that, and then we got stationed or moved to Alaska, and this is where my flying actually got to be the most exciting. Because when you, when you fly a bomber, there's really not a whole lot for you to do. You get to sit there, you get to watch. And my job as a flight surgeon when you fly 
is not to flip the avionics and, you know, yank and bank the aircraft and go different places and whatnot. It's not my job at all. My job was to sit there and go, okay, wow, this is fun. <laughs> and your job is to experience flight and to know what the pilots are actually experiencing. And so I got to experience every part of what a B-52 normally does from low level bomb runs at 500 feet off the deck to uh, air refueling multiple times on a sortie. In fact, a typical flight on a B-52 is 15 hours. Now, you know how many times you have to use the bathroom in 15 hours? In a B-52 with six other guys, that is not a lot of fun. There's special places in the aircraft you can go to take care of that, but it's a long, long day. And when you're done, you're hot, you're sweaty, the whole cockpit stinks like, well, not so great. So my B-52 experience was a lot of fun, but I was ready for something a little, a little different. So when we moved to Alaska, so we've gone now from medical school in Washington, D.C. We spent a year at Travis Air Force Base in California. You can see we're going clear across the country every time we move. And then we go from Travis Air Force Base to Loring Air Force Base. Anybody ever heard of Loring? You shouldn't because it's closed. I closed it or I was part of that process. It's a, it's a great place. The, the people loved us, sort of, but they were mad that Air Force was leaving because that was a big part of the income to a lot of those people up there. We left Maine and we went to Alaska. We were stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base. And at Elmendorf, I moved from flying a bomber and tankers to flying fighters. And there were, there were three fighter squadrons at Elmendorf, two F-15 squadrons that were air superiority models. So they were C's and D's. And then there was an F-15E squadron. Now the difference is that the F-15Es are deep interdiction. Our job in the F-15E was to get deep in enemy territory, drop bombs, and then sneak out and go undetected. That was our job. And you have to get deep into enemy territory in order to be successful at your mission. Well, typically, historically at Elmendorf, the flight surgeons that served in the air superiority squadrons typically had the opportunity to move over to the E-model squadron, but neither of them wanted that. So I walked in as a brand new fighter flight surgeon, and they said, here's your squadron the F-15E, and we were, we were the 90th Fighter Squadron. We were also known as the Dicemen, and I actually have dice that I wear on my flight suit. Um, but, and these are, these are some of our deployments and my call sign and different things, so there's an F-15 if you like that. We went to Korea a lot, uh, we went to Italy. Uh, during that time I actually flew combat, so as a flight surgeon, what they said when I walked into that squadron, my very first day, the squadron commander said, Doc, welcome. Here's your plane tickets. You're going to school. Well, what? School? I don't know. No, I just, what? <laughs> yeah, you're going to school. You got to go learn how to fly this jet. Wow, that's awesome. I'm flight school. And it was. It was, it was a very short course, but I spent a month at Luke Air Force Base in Arizona and I learned how to fly the back seat of an F-15E. Pretty darn cool, if you ask me anyway. Now the best part about that is you think, well gosh, what do you do in the back seat of an F-15? 
And F15e, unlike the, its other sister models, the A, B, C, and D models, those take one guy to fly, or gal, because there are female pilots, so don't let me denigrate the, the women. The, there's one pilot in an F-15 A, B, C, or D model, but in an F-15E, it takes two, and that jet doesn't get off the ground unless the person in the front seat and the person in the back seat know what they're doing. So I had the opportunity to fly an F-15E for four years. Now, when I first started, I will have to tell you, I was not very good because I was doing something that I wasn't really trained to do. Everybody else had spent you know, pilot training, which is about a year, or navigator training, which is also about a year, and then they go through fighter upgrade training program. I didn't do that at all. I went to medical school. I did some general surgery so I could cut on people, and then they said, here, fly an F-15E and, and be good at it. Well, in order to be good at it, what my job in the back seat was, was to tell the pilot where to go. All right, he knows a lot better than I do, but I got to tell him where to drop the bombs. Oh, wow, I've never done that before. But after about seven months, for me, that was a long time. And in that world, seven months is like forever. Uh, but one of the challenges that I faced, my first flight, I had an instructor pilot in the front seat, I'm in the back seat, and I had instructor navigators in the other jets. We, were, we flew as a four ship very often. So there were four aircraft in the air. You could look out and you go, hi there, how you doing? We nod our heads with thumbs up. We're doing all kinds of hand signals. But my very first flight in that F-15, you know what I did? I had this little white comfort bag and I barfed. Not cool. Now you don't want to barf in the inside of a jet because then you have to clean it up. I was really lucky I didn't ever have to. Well, I had to do that one time. That's a funny story, but for a different day. So I got airsick. And, and flying in fighters is really so much fun, but the more you do it, the easier it is. And so the less and less and less I got airsick. But it took about seven months, and I got to the point where I could put on my helmet, I could take off my visor cover, and I was, I was cool. And we were dropping bombs. And it got to the point that after a couple years of flying with the squadron, that the, because we would fly as a four ship, and that, that means that there were eight people in that flight, four pilots, four, we call ourselves WIZOs, weapon system officers, four WIZOs, four pilots. They would actually call me in the middle of the morning and they'd say, hey doc, we got an open pit. Can you come fly with us? Because I got so good at flying in the back seat and getting bombs on target that I was beating all the other navigators, the other backseaters, uh, I think it was mostly luck, to be honest, or whoever was in my front seat. But uh, it, got to, it got to the point where it was just a lot of fun. My air sickness went away, and I had an absolute blast flying an F-15. But that soon came to an end because I had to finish my training. I had to go back to school. I had to do more education. So I had only done one year of general surgery. How am I going to be an ear, nose, and throat specialist? That's what I really wanted to do. Well, this was, that was the diversion that allowed me to advance my career in the Air Force and have a lot of fun while I was at it. And here's the best part. I got paid extra to fly. So I got a little extra in my paycheck. So we saved up money and we were able to do fun things with that. But ultimately, I had to get back to my training. And so I left being a flight surgeon. I went to my surgical training. I did an ear, nose, and throat residency 
four years in San Antonio, Texas. And, and then I was somewhat, because of my experience as being a flight surgeon, I was on a leadership track to become one of the senior leaders in the Air Force. Uh, ultimately, without getting into a lot of those details, uh, ultimately I retired after 24 years or 25 years in the Air Force uh, as an 06, as a colonel. And we retired in Alaska and then decided that Alaska was, how would you put it, dear? Too cold? <laughs> Alaska is a really beautiful place and if you know if you've ever been to Idaho Falls or Rexburg or Shelley or Firth or Rose don't go to Blackfoot or Pocatello because they're not that pretty but it's windy and it's cold there and that's what I grew up with and I love winter winter is still my favorite season so I'm I like a little bit of a fish out of water here in Boise because we don't really get good winters here in Alaska we got awesome winters we had more snow than you can imagine. In fact, most years, we would be trick-or-treating in three feet of snow. That was not unusual. So some of our costumes were designed for hmm, the cold. We were, what did we have? We had uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And let me tell you, the, talk about pill on the, yeah. We were nice and warm, never got cold, and the kids loved it. So for, after four years in Alaska, we went to my residency training program in Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. So another big move all the way to the south. From Lackland, we went to England. We were stationed in England for three years and we were, we were stationed together with some more F-15Es. So there were people that we knew that I was able to rub shoulders with. I didn't get a fly anymore. That was a bummer for me, but uh, it was a lot of fun to hear F-15s taken off again on a really regular basis. Uh, and again, brings back a lot of memories of my time on the flight line uh, in really all the places that, that we went and that we were. Uh, after after uh, England, we went to Korea. Now Korea was uh, one of the more interesting times in our lives, even though it was very short. I did a remote tour. Typically that means that you go by yourself, but I had deployed to Korea five times before this. I knew what was there and I told my boss before I left, I said, I'm bringing my family. He goes, okay, that sounds like fun. And I said, they're gonna be here like a month after I am, so I'll be looking for a place off base to live. Now, I'm sure many of you would go, really, Korea by yourself? What a we lived in the most cool apartment that you can imagine. Nobody had ever lived in it before. It had toilet seats that talked to you. The front door had a video telephone. The, the floors were heated. It was lovely. Now, admittedly, I had one child in a window. I had others on a mattress that was blow up, but it was only a year you can do that. It was a camping trip. <laughs> and my kids loved it. And in fact, it was a nice step off to be able to go to China. And we've been to China. In fact, we spent a Thanksgiving in China. What a weird place to spend Thanksgiving, right? It was so much fun. Uh, we loved Korea and my kids still talk about our time in Korea. After Korea, we went back to Alaska. I loved Alaska so much that when I took the assignment to Korea, I told them, I said, I want a guaranteed follow-on to wherever I want. And they said, sold, done. If you're willing to go to Korea, we'll give you whatever you want. So I said, send me back to Elmendorf. And they did. 
So I got to spend my last five years in the Air Force after a remote tour in Korea. I got to spend five years in Alaska. And then I retired from the Air Force. Um, it was kind of a, it was a hard decision to make, uh, but I had really reached my goal. My goal in the Air Force was to be a colonel. I didn't want to be a general officer, although that's what they were trying to do to me. I said, no, I really don't want to do that. I just want to retire. Because what happens when you become a more senior officer in the Air Force is you become an administrator. And although I'm a good administrator, I think I'm a much better doctor taking care of patients than I am pushing paperwork. At least I would be a lot happier doing it that way. So I opted to continue to practice medicine. I retired from Elmendorf and then I went to, uh, we moved to La Grande, Oregon. Any of you know where that little tiny place is? There are some, you're from, from La Grande? Yeah, so La Grande is a really nice town. We loved La Grande. Uh, it had that nice small town feel that we loved so much. Uh, things unfortunately didn't work out so well and we ultimately uh, left there after a couple years and came here. Uh, my wife actually grew up in Marsing. Anybody know where Marsing is? Little tiny bitty town. They changed the population sign when we came home with our kids. That's how small it is. Just kidding, you guys are way too uptight. Uh, the, um, so Marsing was close. Uh, my wife's father was not in the best of health. He lived in Nampa. This would give us an opportunity to be close. I practiced in Nampa actually at Saltzer Medical Group. Uh, and we just recently built a brand new office building for me. Not Well, not just for me. I could say just for me, side, yeah. Anyway, so, and, and it's in Meridian off of I-84 uh, I and 10 Mile. So that's kind of my sort of overview of my career. Uh, but you know, there's, there's a couple of things that, that really struck me. During my time in the Air Force, there was a lot of experiences that I had and, and my time in the 90th Fighter Squadron was really one of, it was a really fun time. But if you've ever met a fighter pilot, you'll know that they have a very significant, what's the best way to put this? They have a big head. They, they, are, they are proud of who they are. And the word I want to use is cocky. And they are. You know what, surgeons are too, a lot of them. But a lot of the, a lot of the men, and because there were no female pilots and no female wizards that I got to fly with when I was in my, during, during my time flying fighters. But a couple of things that, that fighter pilots do, and, and this is again, goes to the personality of a cocky fighter pilot or a weapon system officer. They did a lot of weird things that I thought, I don't think you should be doing that. Couple of them, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of these are guys who were hard drinkers. So alcohol was a big part of that, really that culture. And in fact, we had a, in our squadron building, we had a bar, a bar. And it had a popcorn machine and we could make our, you know, just like you go to the theater, and we would make jalapeno popcorn. Ooh, you put the jalapeno juice and the jalapeno peppers and you just do the little thing and the whole squadron will be steaming up and your eyes are like, well, why are my eyes watering? It's, it's a jalapeno in the air. But after work, it was not unusual that there would be a beer kegger and it'd be open and people were pouring beers at the end of the day. Now for me, that was never really a temptation. It was never really an interest for me. And there were a couple other 
Latter-day Saint pilots that I flew with in that same squadron. One was a weapon system officer, one was a pilot. And when, you know, I talked about the dice and that I have two dice, I earned those dice, they're earned. But when you get your dice, one of the things, they have a ceremony, it's called the dice, dicing ceremony. And when you get your dice, you're supposed to drink a little shot of turkey. And that's a whiskey. Now, I'd never even touched alcohol before in my whole life. And because of who I was, still am, I guess, I thought for sure as I watched other people go through this, because this was a weekly occurrence. People were getting their dice or getting whatever. And I thought, oh no, when it's my turn, what's going to happen? And the other one, the other air crew that were LDS, they already had theirs. So I didn't get to watch what they ended up going through. So seven months I'm watching this weekly as people are getting their dye, as people are getting their scarves and different things like, oh my word. And everybody, everybody knew, I mean, everybody got a little shot and I got seven up. And everybody knew, hey, it's the doc, he doesn't, you know. And it's not because I was a physician, it's because of my personal beliefs in the word of wisdom. But when that seven month point came around and it was time for me to get my dice, I was really a little bit afraid that I was gonna, there would be some retribution against me because I wasn't gonna drink this whiskey. And it, it, interesting as you watched everybody else drink it except my LDS friends, uh, they didn't like it either. It burned. They would go, oh, you know, they make funny faces like, this doesn't taste that great. And it burns all the way down. But at that seven month mark, because I held true to my standards, because they knew what my standards were, of, and they knew that I was LDS, I didn't have any problems at all. They gave me a little cup, and it had seven up in it. And when I got my dice, I toasted with 7-Up. It was the best. Because they were getting drunk and I was not. But it was a really common problem. In fact, one time we went to Korea, we deployed there. And I was the trusted designated driver for many of our events. The pilots would go and they would drink ammo bowls and different things. And I had my job partly was to keep them safe. And one, one night... They had been out doing their thing and I was driving the pickup and I had a pickup, the bed of the pickup was loaded with drunk pilots. My squadron commander was sitting to my right and he was drooling on my shoulder. It was really disgusting. And we pull into the base and there is a, what we call a sobriety check. And they didn't care if everybody else was drunk, but they needed to know that the driver was not inebriated or intoxicated or had been drinking alcohol at all. And... They looked at me, and I, I think I was probably, I was a major at the time, so I wasn't a senior officer. And they said, hi, sir. Have you been drinking tonight? And I said, no, I have not. How about everybody else? I said, oh, yeah, they've been drinking a lot. I said, my job is to keep them safe and to get them back to our tent city, because we lived in tents. And they looked at me, and they said, you know what? You look good. No problem. I mean, I was clean shaven and the whole works. Uh, we're all in flight suits. And they didn't give us a lick of grief. 
And the squadron commander, who's, again, drooling all over my shoulder, he says to me, he goes, wow, doc, you saved us. Well, no, I really didn't save you. I saved myself because I kept myself free of what you are imbibing. And my liver works good. And it's clear that I have, that I'm clear thought. I can put a sentence together. I'm not drooling or you know, talking with a slurred speech or anything like that. And that really, th there, was, there was more respect from my drunk pilot friends from just being able to stay away from alcohol during that event than really any other thing. Uh, unfortunately, that squadron commander ultimately ended up getting fired about a year later, but that's a different story for a different time. But being able to maintain my standards and what I believe in terms of the word of wisdom uh, held true. That's also a, a funny story that uh, when I went to Korea, I had the opportunity to interact with a whole bunch of Koreans, doctors. And I went to Aju University, and at Aju University, they would have these big gatherings, all physicians sitting at the table. Most of them didn't speak any English, and I obviously didn't speak any Korean, but there were a few who actually had trained in the United States. And as they would, in Korea, everybody eats out of little tiny bowls and chopsticks, and you, it's, it's sort of a communal table. And so you grab your chopsticks and you kind of grab what you want and you put it on your plate and then, then consume. Well, a couple of times there were alcoholic beverages that were served and the, the waitresses didn't know and they would plop stuff right in front of me. Now, I had never once had a discussion with any of them about my religious beliefs. The only thing that they knew about me was that I was an ENT doctor and that I went to Brigham Young University for undergraduate college. And as soon as the waitress put a beverage of alcohol in front of me, one of my, he's an orthopedic surgeon, love him to death, he was one of the very few that actually spoke English. He grabbed the cup and he said, you can't have this. And I said, well, why not? He goes, don't ask, you can't have this. I don't think he could actually say in English that it has alcohol in it, but he, because of my beliefs and how I lived my life, he knew that I don't drink alcohol. And there are multiple stories. Uh, Robert C. Oakes, who was a 70, uh, was a four-star general. Uh, he actually commissioned me a second lieutenant. He has very similar experiences of being in large parties, large groups, and holding true to his standards by either enjoying an orange juice or a glass of milk. Uh, so you can certainly survive in a big political world without imbibing in alcohol. Uh, and those are some of the things that, that as I went through my career that I, that I really appreciate. And the gospel always held me in good stead. People recognized that I work hard. Again, that's a principle that I learned from my father and his father, and that we teach in the gospel. Uh, one other thing, as, as I think about working hard, um, I think about the blessings of holding true to my standards when it comes to the Sabbath day. Now, you'd think that as a physician, I work a lot of Sundays, and that is absolutely true. 
There are a lot of times when I'm on call and I have a patient that comes in that's so sick that they need to go to the operating room or need a surgery or they need something taken care of and it's Sunday. My least favorite day to do things outside of church or my family. But I learned as I started taking call and as I started to have to spend 24 hours in the hospital, this obligatory time, as an intern, you didn't have really the opportunity to leave the hospital, at least in the first month or so. After a month, they said, okay, yeah, you've proven yourselves. You can now be a little bit more outside of the hospital. And one of the things that I found is that when I was on call, if I made every attempt that I could to attend my church meetings on Sunday, even if I had been up all night long, even knowing when it would be a lot better for me physically to go lay down and take a nap or to sleep, if I put forth the effort to make it to church, to just go to church, to put on a white shirt and a tie, even, and my wife will tell you that this is true, even when I would sleep through sacrament meeting, other than enough to just take the sacrament, my week just went a ton better. And there are very few Sundays in, in my entire life, and there are some where it's been, yeah, we're in surgery, there's no way I'm gonna make it to church. But because I made every effort that I could to make it to church, to partake of the sacrament, and to do the things that I know we should do on Sunday, I can tell you that I was greatly blessed because of that effort. And even if I was comatose, in sacrament meeting, the bishop only seeing the top of my poor bald head, it was worth it to me. And those are a few of the things that really strike me in terms of my experience overall in my career and in my life. Uh, you can see that I got to do a whole bunch of really cool stuff in my life and in my career. And I still do. Uh, it, it, I'm, I'm not retired again yet, but I'm not far from that. But I can tell you that each and every day, I, I love what I do. Uh, and, and I've had patients who have left my office and they said, wow, it's clear that you enjoy what you do every day. And a lot of that is really based on who I am because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel in so many facets, whether it's the word of wisdom, whether it's keeping the Sabbath day holy, there are just so many aspects of what we do and what we believe in the gospel. I think the gospel is a big part of why I was blessed to be able to do the fun things that I did in my career. From being a flight surgeon, to being a colonel in the Air Force and leading hospitals, to flying F-15Es, to being able to deploy to a humanitarian assignment in South Africa, deploying to different places. Uh, to see how the gospel is spread. You know, speaking of Korea, just briefly, do you know that the reason that the gospel spread in Korea is from U.S. servicemen who took the gospel before Korea was even open for preaching the gospel and they created branches and ultimately wards and they're huge now. When we went there, it was the 50th anniversary of the church in Korea and I got to participate in that celebration. And they invited every missionary who had ever served in Korea to come back, including servicemen who had been there 
early on during the Korean War in the 1950s. That's the power of the gospel. And I think Korea is a great example of how the gospel has spread, how it continues to grow, and how it continues to, to positively impact people's lives. Korea, South Korea, not North Korea, South Korea, is one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world today. And a lot of that, in my opinion, is because of, the, of how the Koreans have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that that's true in my life. It's true in what I do every day, in how I interact with people, and how I live my life every single day. So with that, um, let me just briefly bear my testimony that I know this church is true. I know that Jesus is the Christ, that he sacrificed his life for us, for me and for you. He loves you and he loves me unconditionally. We all sin, we all have our faults and our weaknesses. And through his atonement, we can overcome those and become perfected in him and ultimately be able to live with him. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.